0: In 2018, the Wealth Standard Podcast broke down the year into three seasons, each focusing on a principle from the inspired works of philosopher John Locke, specifically his philosophy on life, liberty, and property. In 2019, we progressed from principle to the ideal environment for building wealth and achieving prosperity. The theme was laissez-faire capitalism, For season two, it continues. The theme is entrepreneurship and intrapreneurship and how you apply the principles and environment to the individual. The guests ranging from economists to entrepreneurs to political influencers, authors, and more will teach you how to take your life to the next level. Now, on to the next episode. Thanks for joining me this week. My guest is Francis Greenberger. He is the chairman and CEO of Time Equities, the owner of the literary agency Sanford J. Greenberger Associates, which has represented noted authors such as Dan Brown, James Patterson, Nicholas Sparks, and Nelson DeMille. He is also the founder and chairman of Art Omai, which is previously OMI International Art Center, and the Greenberger Center for Social and Criminal Justice. And he's also the best-selling author of Risk Game, The Self-Portrait of an Entrepreneur. Francis, it's such an honor to have you on. Thank you for taking the time.
1: Oh, my pleasure to be here, Patrick. Thank
0: you. Well, Francis, I thought a good question to start with is just around this topic and theme of entrepreneurship. So you identify yourself in the subtitle of your book as an entrepreneur. Like, What does that word mean to you?
1: I thought about uh, what the characteristics of an entrepreneur are. I would say one of the first characteristics are that you have to be comfortable with risk. If you're not comfortable with risk, you should use your talents in another context where you're getting steady paycheck or appropriate incentives. But being an entrepreneur involves risk, just does. For some reason, I've always been comfortable with it. Now, there's what I call intelligent risk, and then there's just throw the dice and hope for the best. And I believe in intelligence risks, which means that you're very informed about what the challenges are, whatever it is that you're undertaking, and uh, what the risk reward is. What is the opportunity? And does the reward, if you're right, sufficiently reward you, given that there's a chance that you might underperform your expectations or things might go wrong that you don't expect? So, those are some of the characteristics. That I think go into a good entrepreneur. The other thing that's very important is to be creative. Because if you go out into the marketplace and you are trying to be a generic competitor, do what everybody else is doing in the same way, the only way that you can be effective there is usually on price. And mostly entrepreneurs will not be successful at that because it requires quite a bit of scale. And that's a very hard way to succeed up against larger, more established players. Really, the way the entrepreneur succeeds is by seeing things differently than other people or the other players in the market, seeing a way out of problem that perhaps they can buy the asset discount to what its stabilized value would be and find a way to bring a solution to whatever the situation is or understand the market differently than other people. Um, so tolerance of risk and creativity, I think, are two key ingredients.
0: It's fascinating because it seems as if like creativity and risk have kind of a partnership, if you will, because I think most people just have a fear of risk, fear of something not happening the way that they presume, which is always the case. I mean, there's risk in everything. It's just different degrees. But when risk presents itself, it seems like having the value and the understanding of creativity to navigate whatever challenge is thrown your way, whatever obstacle exists, almost allows you to have control over risk.
1: I think that's true. And it's funny you mentioned fear of risk. bought my kids a cup the other day. saw this, one of those cups that has lettering on it. And it said, had the expression, it said, imagine what you could accomplish if you weren't afraid to fail. Uh, which is another way of saying things. And I think what you're saying is that creativity or understanding options and having ways to meet challenges is a way not to be intimidated by risk, but see it as an opportunity.
0: Some examples in your successful professional life where you have confronted risk and, and took it on and achieved success on the back end.
1: Well, I would say the first thing is, I look at markets differently than other people. Recent example our real estate company not only invests nationally, we have properties in 30 states, but we invest in five different countries, including Europe. And about five years ago, I became aware that Holland was a sort of at the end of a very deep recession, that a lot of real estate valuations had been hurt. And the Dutch banks had stopped financing most commercial real estate in Holland, except, you know, if you had a ten year lease with a credit tenant and you were in, in the center of Amsterdam, you could get financed. But if you were in one of twenty suburban markets in, in Holland, you're in trouble. So prices fell precipitously, occupancies fell. It was a very tough time, and there were no local players who had the resources to step up. So we saw that opportunity and we began buying. We need- beginning, we bought all cash because we couldn't get financing. Now it's three or four years later, we own, I think, 40 office buildings and set up an office there. Fortunately for us, when we came in, it was kind of the nadir of, of this cycle. And things have recovered, the market's doing very well, and we've had outstanding results from our investment there. And we've been able to entice a, a German bank to see things the way we saw them, and in fact, we ended up getting very advantageous financing shortly after we acquired these properties. So that's an example of seeing things differently. In this case, a perspective that was outside of the Dutch perspective, who was weighed down by their immediate experience, by the conditions that they had to cope
0: with. So looking at that decision process, I mean, starting with the kind of macroeconomic approach where you saw economic depression, right? and then there, toward the end of it, where did you see the opportunity that it would rebound? right? Was it in the company formation increases? Was it the technology that was coming out of Amsterdam? I mean, what were some of those micro things that you saw that led you to believe that investing in office space would be a good return on investment?
1: Well, my approach was less data-driven or metric-driven than what you're suggesting. Uh, the first thing I said to myself was, Holland, is, a, in my view, is one of the outstanding countries in Europe, always has been. They have a great deal of transparency, which not all Europeans do. They are very well-educated, very smart, and in fact, quite entrepreneurial population. They have a, a lot of positives. And so to me, this was a place that I saw no reason why they shouldn't be able to repair the cycle they were going through. And come back to a more normal standard. The other thing is, in the case of properties that we bought, were the first portfolio we bought, like 10 buildings, and there were 70% occupied, but we were making about 9.5% return on the 70% occupancy. So my bet was a really simple one.
0: It was cash too, not leverage, right? Right,
1: unleverage. So my bet was a really simple one. I didn't think that things were going to get a lot worse. And where we were, or they might get a little worse, but even if my return went from nine and a half to eight, it wouldn't be a tragedy. And I felt whenever times got better, which I didn't know whether that would be tomorrow in a year or five years, but I'm starting from a very high return base, so I wasn't worried. So I felt I could weather any further erosion and I thought that we were probably at the nadir at that point. So it was a really pretty simple kind of view. I thought we were entering at a good point. Things were profitable, so we didn't have to get better, and, and we could still be happy. But my sense was this was a good place intuitively, and it was going to get better.
0: Yeah, it's, it's the whole asymmetric the asymmetric risk analysis, right, where you have tremendous upside, but yet it's not an equal amount of risk to the downside. It's a limited amount of risk.
1: Right. And I think what happens is people often perceive that when you enter in difficult times, that's a risky thing to do. Actually, it's the reverse. Yeah. Because when you're buying things inexpensively, things could get a little worse, but they can also get a lot better. Yeah. Whereas if you go in when things are very, very good, then you're going to pay the top, top price. And usually when you get to the top of the mountain, there's only one way to go, and that's down. No. Well, I'd rather start at the bottom.
0: Well, there's so many sayings. When there's blood in the streets is when you buy, even if it's your own. but usually it's the opposite as far as the normal investor. It's interesting that you're bringing up, the first time I went there, I had this appreciation of just how entrepreneurial, but also how driven and educated they were based on a lot of their history, right? They were the first engineers that figured out how to build a city that was underwater. And that's part of what makes up the future generation, right? Is the technical and understanding of parents has tremendous influence on the next generation and, and so forth. So you had that kind of generational work integrity behind what was going to be coming up in the future years to make a wise investment. So that's fascinating. It's a great example of asymmetric risk idea, as well as looking at factors out there and seeing where there's opportunities. Well, uh, it's worked out very well for us. (laughs) Well, maybe now I know you were in the publishing business. You took some tremendous risks there. Would you maybe tell us about some of those experiences? Well,
1: in publishing, no, we weren't publishers. We were literary agents. Okay. Means we rep- got it. represented writers, oh, got uh, it. Okay. and we sought publishers for their books. Got it. So to some degree, what you're investing in an author in the beginning is really your time and your reputation. But economically, beyond that, there isn't a, a huge investment. If you're not successful, you'll have spent a lot of time working on, on something you'll Perhaps have tarnished your reputation if you put forth things that are not worthwhile, but you don't have a great economic loss and when you 're an agent, you send a book to publishers very often if they're not interested, you know they go into long winded explanations for why they 're not interested in my view, frankly, I threw all those letters in the garbage i wasn't looking i didn't really care people who didn't agree with me. I was looking for a couple of people who did agree with me because there's only one publisher in the end so If 25 said no, it didn't matter if the 26 said yes. And I guess one of my early stories, one of my first clients in the business was somebody who's now famous, but in those days was completely unknown, James Patterson. And he sent me this manuscript. I had not met him. He had read somewhere that I was a young agent looking at unsolicited manuscripts. So I read this manuscript by him and I started sending it out to publishers. And in fact, I sent it to 28 publishers. Every one of them rejected it. 29th said if he rewrote it, they would consider publishing it, which they did, which he did. And they still rejected it. I then sent it to 10 more publishers. And by that time, I had run out of publishers. And I was sending it to different people at the same publishing house. So (laughs) Little Brown had already rejected, lower level editor there had already rejected it. But I sent it to a higher level editor. He loved it. He offered a generous advance for first novel. It went on to win an Edgar for Best Mystery of the Year. And of course, his career is legendary. I only represented him for the first, I think his first three books. At that point, he said to me, look, I read about all your real estate transactions. Got to figure out whether you're an agent or you're in the real estate business. I think I've done a pretty good job for you. He said, no, got to choose. And I said, well, (laughs) I'm going to be in the real estate business no matter what you say. And so we parted company. But he's had an incredible career since then, as we all know. So that's an example of having a point of view, feeling conviction with respect to it, and then going and trying to get the world, the market to agree with you.
0: Well, it seems to me that you have a unique way in which you perceive opportunity. And because taking the approach you did and putting your reputation on the line, as you mentioned, and going above and beyond and figuring out creative ways to reach different people at the publishing companies it showed you that there was an understanding of what that opportunity was. You weren't just doing it to do it. You were doing it because you saw opportunity that most others didn't see.
1: I had conviction about my view of what he had written.
0: Did you have an affinity toward the mystery genre of writing before, or did you read it and knew that there was some gold in there?
1: I can't say that I was a mystery aficionado. I wasn't. But the name of the book was the Thomas Berryman number. It was an assassination novel, kind of espionage of Murky. I guess in those days, that would have been post the Kennedy assassination, both John and Robert, Martin Luther King. So assassination was very much on people's minds. It sort of played into that. And I just thought it was well done. It was highly stylized in its language, which differentiated it from a lot of other mysteries at the time. Just believed in it.
0: Well, I just have a couple more questions for you. This has been awesome. What would you say is something that you see in entrepreneurs regarding risk that they don't see?
1: Well, I think I work with a lot of people in real estate company, a lot of very, very bright, capable acquisition people who are, in a sense, entrepreneurs. And they often, the process of underwriting real estate, sort of take a view of it, and then you try to figure out what you think it's going to earn, usually projecting for it over 10 years. So there's all kinds of assumptions that get into it. And usually they, or after a lot of experience, et cetera, they come to a set of assumptions and that's what they sort of present is their vision of that transaction. And one of the things that I do is I push them and I say, okay, let's create sensitivities around some of the variables. So what happens, you know, you say the rents are going to be 18 bucks, what happens if they're 17 or 16? You think that the occupancy is going to be 92 percent, show me what happens as occupancy slips down to 85. So creating all kinds of variances to the scenarios that people envision and to the assumptions that they put in to any given situation is pushing beyond where a lot of entrepreneurs sort of start out, they may be very sophisticated and experienced in reaching their view, but then they don't sort of subject it to quantifying the what-ifs. They talk about risks as a generality, but they don't quantify it and then look at the outcome if XYZ happens, that is at variance with their informed view of the market.
0: Do you see the inability to do that as potentially creating a lot of risk in the marketplace right now?
1: I think Certainly, to the extent that when one is acquiring assets, one competes against people who may be less knowledgeable, it's important not to just follow the market because it's the market. You really have to have a very clear view of what you're going to do with the asset, how you're going to run it, and how you're going to manage it. And you have to be very disciplined in that because there are always competitors in the market who may be less informed or they may have other sources of capital. Sometimes if there's a fund out there who has a use it or lose it situation, maybe they've raised $50 million or $100 bucks, invested over two years, they have to return the money to their investors. So as they get towards the end of their cycle, if they haven't been able to invest it, suddenly their standards slip and they have motivations that somebody who's more disciplined doesn't. So, you've really got to stick tight to your own view and not let the market drag you into dangerous territory, even if there are other players that are transacting at different pricing than you see as being sensible and sustainable and having a good risk reward associated with it.
0: This is maybe the last question, but what are you paying attention to right now as far as where opportunity could be? Because I know the perception, I would say the universal perception of markets is always shifting. But just as much as there's risk, there's always going to be a opportunity as well. What are you paying attention to right now that you see as potential opportunity?
1: Well, to some degree, we always sort of trade wherever we see price disruption. So as an example, right now, the market for retail properties is disrupted. There's a perception that e-commerce is going to be an overwhelming challenge and that retail properties are on the decline. And as a result, the price of the properties have dropped and the cap rates have gone up significantly. We believe that the cap rates are, are very, very generous in that even if you underwrite into the equation some downside, given e-commerce challenge and, or choppiness in the retail markets, it's very often you can make a very good investments in retail. You have to understand it in depth. You have to understand the tenants and a million other considerations. So that's an example of disruption that we buy into. Another area that we're investing in at the moment are under-occupied office building. Right now, when an office building has weak occupancy for any number of reasons, um, it tends to trade at a vast discount from its stabilized value. So, maybe an office building that would have a $150 valuation a foot if it was uh, the submarket occupancy, let's say 85%. If its occupancy is 50%, the value of that asset might fall to $60 a foot. So a vast discount from what it would be worth if it was leased up. And maybe the cost of leasing up that asset is, could be $30, $40 a foot. So you'd have an all-in cost of 100 well, if it's then gonna be worth one fifty, that's a very big reward in the real estate business. Now I don't know exactly why office buildings sell at that heavier discount. Clearly one that has significant vacancy is worth less than it doesn't. But to us it's a mispriced factor. And so we buy those buildings and we fix them up and, and then we become strong competitors in the market because we pay a lot less for our building than everybody else in the market. So we can even rent them for a few bucks less and tenants are happy and we're happy.
0: Do you see opportunity in shifting use of property? As you were speaking, there's a, I'm right in downtown Salt Lake and there's a shopping center here that was developed as part of the Olympics back in 2001. And it had a competitor come in and essentially take all the tenants and it became this kind of ghost town but there was a fund that bought it a few years ago and turned it into this kind of center for younger entrepreneurs. And there's been, since then, all these different office buildings built around it. And in there, there's like mystery games, like the games where you have to solve problems. I'm not sure if you've seen those before, but they have that and they have arcades and hangout centers and restaurants. they, they, They shifted the use from pure retail into this kind of like center or hub For for more tech-based companies, younger people, do you see like use changing over the course of time and opportunities there? Similar to what I explained.
1: Just as an example, we owned a, there's a property in West Palm. Before we owned it, it was a shopping center. And then a prior owner, even to us, it became uh, somewhat of a ghost town. And the prior owner converted it to sort of B minus office space, which is not ideal in it. A shopping center tends to be deep, so the space is very dark, so it doesn't give a lot of window line for offices. Um, So it's not perfect. But they did some work, and for a long time, and when we saw it, we bought it because it was on a lot of land. It was on 10 acres of land, which in West Palm is a big site. And for a while, we just kept the office building going. But a lot of our tenants were government tenants. government built their own buildings. They moved people out, there really wasn't a market for this kind of secondary office space. So we made the decision to redevelop it, and we're now in construction. We're making it into a 300-unit housing complex. So we demolished the old building, and now it's going to be a housing complex, which West Palm's a very strong market. And uh, this will be an outstanding property when we we get done with it. So in its life cycle, it started as a shopping center. It became an office building, and now it's going to be – first-class housing. And that happens frequently.
0: Requires, as you mentioned right in the beginning, that's where it requires that kind of creative mindset to see there's always opportunity. It just may not have been what it was once. It may be something new based on how the environment is changing. And that's really interesting. That's why I've been fascinated researching ways in which I can inter- interview you because the idea of risk, I would say, is one of those things that prevents people from taking action. And then the creativity is also one of those things that is, I'm not sure if that's something that you learn or establish, but the idea of being creative allows you to see and create opportunity as opposed to it just happening. This has been a fascinating conversation.
1: I think another uh, way to look at creativity and entrepreneurship is to think about sort of that every problem has a solution. Yeah. And the person who can find that solution is going to create value. So whether you're buying a problem that somebody else has and finding a way to to solve that problem, or if it's a problem that you have because you already own it, it's not like when there's a problem you should just put your head in the sand and say, OMG. So most problems can be solved. Sometimes you have to be very imaginative, you have to be very creative, but that's the thing that makes risk less intimidating for me is a belief in
0: solutions. Yeah, I love the saying that problem is unanswered question. I agree with that. <laughs> well, Francis, this has been awesome. I, I really appreciate you adding your insight based on your really successful experience over the course of time. And it sounds like you love what you do, you're loving life, and you're con- continuing at it despite your success after success. And so congratulations.
1: Well, thank you very much. I do like what I do. Every morning I wake up and I'm excited to meet today's <laughs>
0: challenges and opportunities. How can the audience learn more about you, your book, uh, and ways to just kind of keep in touch and see what you're up to?
1: Well, for sure, they can they order my book online. It's called Risk Game. And in the back of the book, I actually have my email. And if anybody has a question or thing they want to contact me about, I answer all my emails. I get up very early in the morning, usually from four or five till around 7.30, answering uh, lots and lots of emails. So That's one way.
0: Well, Francis, thank you so much. We'll make sure we post all of the links for buying the book, your website, on the show notes. So if you guys are listening and can't write anything down, just go ahead over to thewealthstandard.com and check out the show notes and all that information will be there. All right, Francis, thank you so much again. And hopefully we can connect in the future. Very much so,
1: Patrick. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to The Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.